All right. Well, let's uh, let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we thank you again for a, another opportunity to come together to study your word and to uh, to try to learn how to interpret it correctly. And uh, Lord, just I pray that you would uh, press upon our minds the importance of of getting the the interpretation of the text right. Uh, Lord, that um, it's not simply a, an intellectual exercise where we get to play around with uh, different things and try to come up with an interesting sounding interpretation, but, but Lord, that we are trying to understand your mind. We are trying to understand the things that you have to say to us. And so it is vital that we take it just so seriously and that we that we really attempt to understand what it is you are saying to us. And, and God, I just pray that, that you would impress that on our minds, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, uh, cause us to just see the importance of that and to to strive to be diligent, uh, that we would be uh, people who do not need to be ashamed, that we accurately handle your word. Um, and God, we are just so dependent on you for that, and I pray that that you would enable us to do that and that through that you would be honored and um, and Lord just that your church would continue to grow and reflect the image of Christ I pray in his name Amen Alright so we've been looking at um, how to study the Bible um, I neglected to bring my previous week's notes so let's see if I can Let's see if I can review from memory. Um, so we've talked about um, why it's important to study the Bible um, and dealt with some objections um, to that. Um, and we have talked about, let's see, what was the second the week? The role of the Holy Spirit. The role of the Holy Spirit, yes, that is correct. Um, thank you. Um, yeah, so we talked about the role of the Holy Spirit and how... Uh, that is a, a part of um, what we are looking at when we're. Uh, that's a, that's a. It's an important part of our correctly interpreting the the scriptures, just that we have the aid of the Holy Spirit and what that means and what it doesn't mean. Um, and let's see, we talked about uh, basically the idea of trying to find the, the meaning of the text. Um, that that's really what we're we're after, and our approach needs to reflect that. Um, and then last week we talked about um, about genres, um, about the different types of literature we find in Scripture, um, and uh, taking those things into account as we interpret Scripture. That it's uh, it's a very different thing when we're looking at a historical narrative versus when we're looking at poetry, and we we kind of apply uh, the rules of interpretation a little bit differently depending on what we're looking at. So that's where we've been so far. Um, and last week I, I wanted to cover uh, some figures of speech. Uh, we ran out of time. So we're going to begin just by looking at some figures of speech. And and then we're going to uh, kind of just look at the the issue of, um, of using Scripture to interpret Scripture, which is one of the most important principles um, in interpretation of Scripture. And there will be a, an exercise. Hopefully you have a handout. If not, the... I, I see some empty chairs where there's some that you can you can definitely grab one. Um, but anyway, so let's uh, let's start just by going over some some figures of speech. This is um, 
kind of just interesting in you know getting kind of the names of these things. Um, most of the time, we recognize these. We're we're used to encountering these in our everyday speech. We obviously need to be aware. Um, that they are going to pop up in the Bible as well and do our best to recognize them when they pop up. And for most of these, I have scriptural examples. So uh, the first one um, is hyperbole, and I know we've mentioned this one uh, in a previous lesson. Um, Hyperbole is the use of exaggerated terms for the purpose of emphasis or heightened effect. Um, so the example I have here is John chapter 3, verse 26. Um, and uh, here uh, some people are speaking to John the Baptist. Uh, and they, it says, that, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Now, should we interpret that to mean that Literally every single person is going to Jesus at this point? No. No, no. So why why did the people who came to John the Baptist, why did they use that language? Well, to emphasize, I mean, it, to me that says all, many of many of those that were coming with us, many of those that were listening to us or to you, John, are now going, and it's an exaggeration to uh, to emphasize the point. Right? Yeah. It's 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 just like there's there's just a ton of people that are going to Jesus, um, and so they just it's like well, everybody's going. It's like you know, it's like we, we we use that language all the time, don't we? It's like you know, it's like oh yeah, the only thing anybody ever talks about is you know the election or coronavirus or something like you know, it's like. We don't actually mean that's the only thing everybody's talking about, but we just we overstate it to really just bring out the emphasis. So that's what's going on there. Um, just a common everyday thing, and we do find it in the Bible. So you don't want to. Sometimes people will take stuff like that and they'll say, "Well, see, there's errors in the Bible because you know somebody's stating something that isn't absolutely literally true." It's like, well, they're using hyperbole, so there's no problem with what they're saying. Um, then there's idiom. Now idioms are idioms are a lot of fun just in English. Um, if you're you know familiar with idioms, it's it's kind of neat to talk about them. But um, an idiom is an expression uh, in the usage of a language that is particular to itself, either in having a meaning that cannot be derived from the combined meanings of the element, um, such as up in the air, which is means you know it's undecided. But it's like well you can't figure that out if you don't. You don't know that up in the air means undecided. You're just like it's it's up in the air. What does that mean? You know, um, or it's uh, it's a grammatically atypical use of words. So um, that's that's basically what it, an idiom is. Um, you know, and different languages have different fun little idioms. Um, Acts chapter seven verse fifty one. Um, Stephen is speaking to the Jews who are about to put him to death. And uh, he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Um, So he says that they are stiff-necked and they are uncircumcised in heart and ears. Should we interpret that to mean that, you know, that like they slept wrong and they got a crick in their neck or something like that? 
I would view that as the same as telling someone they're hard-headed. Right, yeah, exactly. Exactly, yeah. It's like they're, they're just unwilling to submit themselves to God. That's that's what the idiom means. And you know, and then we have another idiom there is talking about uncircumcised uh, and heart and ears. Um, and there's no idea there of like actually cutting off part of the flesh of your ear or something like that. Um, it's really just just the idea that it's that it's 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 unclean. It's not devoted to God. Um, and so that's the you know just using those those phrases to to communicate something that's just, just idiomatic. Um, another one is a metaphor. This is a this is a really common one. It's a it's an implied comparison between two dissimilar things that have something in common. Uh, Jesus was very fond of using metaphor. Um, John uh, chapter 10 uh, verses 7 through 9. It's a very familiar one. Um, Jesus. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep do not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. And that's pretty clear there. It's like Jesus is saying, I'm a door. But... Nobody would, you know, understand that to mean that he's actually saying that he's, you know, this rectangle thing made of wood with a handle and hinges and stuff like that. Um, everybody, you know, I mean, it's, it should just be evident that uh, the idea is that he's the way. He's he's the the access point. That's the idea that he's trying to communicate. So he's just using that as a metaphor. If anybody has any questions about this, just feel free to jump in. Um, personification. That's another one that we find in the Bible. Um, personification is a figure of speech in which an inanimate object or abstraction is endowed with human qualities or abilities. Um, one pretty clear example is in Psalm 98, verse 8. It's a, it's a song of, of praise. And it says, Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together. And you look at that, it's like, well, how can how can a river clap its hands? I mean, it's just it just doesn't make sense. If we try to interpret that, you know, literally in the sense of like in a wooden literal sense, um, it just doesn't make any sense. It, hills don't have mouths; they can't sing. Um, and you know, it's just it's it's a song of praise, and it's putting human characteristics on inanimate objects that don't actually have them. Uh, now, one thing that should be noted is is that um, there are places in the Bible where people might be tempted to to apply personification where they shouldn't. Um, one clear example is uh, with Balaam's donkey. You have a donkey that speaks with human speech. Now, normally, that's not going to happen. But if you um, are really aware of genre as you're reading that, you will see this is historical narrative. It's not... It's not presented in any kind of way where we have a notion that we should take it as personification. Um, it's something simply miraculous that God allowed this donkey to speak at this particular time. So um, we definitely need to, you know, be aware when we're applying. It's like, oh, this is personification. That it, it actually is personification. That we don't uh, pick up something where it's, you know, it's a miracle taking place. Something else you see in the Bible is phenomenological language. Um, that is simply describing things uh, the way that they appear 
rather than the way they actually are. Um, clearest example, this is something we still do in our day, um, Mark 16.2, uh, and very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Now, if you're at all familiar with our understanding of astronomy and the, the motion of the sun and the planets, um, you know that the Earth revolves around the sun. Um, and, you know, the, the idea of the sun actually rising, it's not like perfectly scientifically accurate because it's, it's actually the, the Earth is spinning and it makes it appear that the sun is rising. Um, but that's just that's just describing things the way that they appear, and it doesn't mean that oh well the Bible's inaccurate because it's say, stating that the sun is spinning around the Earth. Um, it's, we just use that language all the time today. If you you know turn on the you know the the uh, the Weather Channel, you know they're gonna they're gonna use the same type of language. They're gonna talk about the sun rising and the sun setting. There's nothing wrong with using that type of language. That's just it's just phenomenological language describe things the way that they appear. Um, you also have puns in the Bible. Um, this is a little harder to, to see uh, since we're reading translations, but a pun is, is a play on words, uh, sometimes on different senses of the same word and sometimes, sometimes on a similar sense uh, or sound of different words. Um, don't really have an example. I mean, there are examples, but... We, we really wouldn't see them, so you kind of have to just like look at what people have said who know the original languages to really get those, but they are there, so in your study you may come across discussion of those, of those things if you're studying a particular passage, um, but they do exist there, so it wasn't, it wasn't just Shakespeare that did puns, the, the Bible authors did as well, so... Um, then you have Proverbs. I mean, obviously we have the whole book of Proverbs, but it's it's a it's it's a type of figure of speech. Sometimes they're they're called a, a truism. Um, that can be a little dangerous because truism can have other meanings as well. But it's basically it's a statement that is generally true. It's not a statement that's absolutely true. Um, one example from the book of Proverbs, Proverbs ten nine: Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his way crooked will be found out. Now, that's a statement that's generally true. Um, but, obviously, you can walk in integrity and be in great danger, and you can be someone who makes his way crooked and actually get away with it in this life. Um, so, it's, it's something that isn't always the case, but it's something that is generally true. Okay. Another one is a simile. Um, a simile is a stated comparison, uh, usually formed with like or as, between two fundamentally dissimilar things that have certain qualities in common. Um, so Matthew 23, 27, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. And so there he's saying that the Pharisees are like whitewashed tombs. And so he's using a simile there because he wants to compare. You know, it's like, well, they got whitewashed tombs. They look pretty on the outside, but inside they're full of rottenness. In the same way, the Pharisees, uh, with their legalism, they made themselves appear very righteous on the outside, but inside they were full of wickedness. Ben. Ben. 
something that you kind of like even right here where we're talking about things. Uh, but but uh, the heart, for example, is used all the time, and, and you're saying on the inside of the Pharisees. But there's a there's a spiritual angle to that that isn't necessarily jump right out to you from the text. Um, like when it talks about the heart, for example, when uh, it uh, if you aren't familiar with the scripture, you might look at that and think that's just an organ or whatever that they're talking right. about. Right. Right. Yeah. And, I yeah. was wondering if you were going to mention that at all or not. No, I hadn't specifically thought of that. But I mean, it's like again, that's something that I don't. It seems to me like that's something that is used a lot, you know, in modern day English as well. So, um, I I can see you know the possibility of somebody like trying to take that really literally, and it's like, oh yeah, that's that's you know that organ inside your chest that pumps blood. But um, but no, it's you know, it is it is talking about your your inner spiritual being, your your thoughts, your emotions. Um, but, you know, we, we do have that type of, you know, of use of the language in our day. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, we're always told to follow our heart, you know, things like that. So, um, but yeah, but that is a good point. That is a, another figurative use of language there. Um, and that's, that's, um, that's kind of the list there. Uh, one thing I did want to specifically mention, and I'm, I'm not entirely sure what category to put it in, but it's a it's a good example of not taking something in a wooden literal sense. Um, it is a controversial one, um, so um, dispensationalists would undoubtedly um, not appreciate uh, what I'm talking about here. But um, in Revelation 20, the first three verses, um, it uses the term. Uh, a thousand years. Um, I'll just read it here, the first three verses. Then I saw an angel come down from heaven, holding in his hand uh, the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him out of the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So there we have, you know, the number a thousand, and a lot of a lot of people uh, would look at that and say, oh, well, that must mean exactly one thousand years um, in in terms of like the Earth going around the sun. It takes you know 365 and a quarter days for it to get all the way around the sun. It's like, well, it should be a thousand of those travels, um, but that's just not. A necessary way to take it in the Bible. Um, I have a, a couple of examples of thousand being used where it's very clear that that's not um, what's intended in that place. Now there are many places in the Bible where a thousand is used um, and it means it in in terms of just the regular number. Uh, but there are places where thousand is used in a way that is just intended to convey a certain idea and isn't intended to present a certain number. Uh, so Psalm 50, uh, verses 10 and 11, uh, says, For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. Now there we see, it's the clear statement from God himself, that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Now, does that mean that 
okay, there's 1,000 hills that have cattle on them, and he owns them, but any other hills that have cattle on them, he doesn't own those cattle. No, it's, I mean, it's, it's very clear from the whole flow of that that he's, he's, I mean, every beast of the forest is mine. I know all the birds of the hills, I, uh, and all that moves in the field is mine. And so, you know, he's using absolute terms for every other uh, line of this of this poetry. Um, and so it's, it's just a poetic way of saying he owns all the cattle. There, he's not short on cattle. Um, I mean, he's, he's in this context, he's um, basically rebuking the people of Israel for their, basically their, their form of worship, their, their, just, their formalism of worship, where they're just, they're offering sacrifices and they're thinking, that's fine, I don't really have to obey as long as I just present all the sacrifices, I'm doing fine. And God's like, look, I don't, I don't need your sacrifices. I've got everything I need, um, and you know, what, what I want is for you to obey. That's the the context of what's going on there. And in that, and he's saying, I, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I'm not, I'm not short on cattle that I need you to offer sacrifices to me. Um, and so, when we look at that, we need to understand that. <laughs> a thousand in that in that instance does not literally mean a thousand. I actually was in a discussion with a dispensationalist once where he insisted that I was wrong, that it literally meant that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, but that it doesn't exclude the fact that he owns cattle on other hills as well. But that like what the text is actually saying is that he owns the cattle on exactly one thousand hills according to the number. Just like that's I mean, that, that was just a, a, too much of a commitment to his position to actually allow Scripture to speak for itself. Um, another example, Second uh, Peter 3.8, uh, But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is, is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And there, what's, what's, uh, what's Peter trying to communicate when he says that? Yeah, that's exactly right. God doesn't experience time like us. And I mean, he even like, you know, he reverses it. You know, it's like, I mean, if it was just like one way, it's like, oh, this is a formula. You know, you know, if if if, you know, if a thousand years is like a day to God, then it's okay. So we can just take this little formula and, you know, uh, you know, the number of years we can just, you know, you know, make that. Well, that's the number of, you know, of days and it. It doesn't work that way. It's, it's like you know, for God, it's like if it's if it's a day, okay. If it's a thousand years, okay. Or, or you know, vice versa. It doesn't matter uh, to God. It's you know, he he just interacts with time differently than we do. Um, and for us, like the difference between a day and a thousand years is just huge. We we experience many many days in our lives, and we never come anywhere near experiencing a thousand years in our life. Uh, but you know, to God, it just doesn't work that way. And so there we have, you know, just a couple of clear examples where a thousand is being used in the Bible, and it doesn't mean the literal number. So um, it doesn't mean that Revelation 20 can't mean a literal 1,000 years, but I at least want to throw it out there that there's no there's no rule of hermeneutics that says it must mean exactly a 1,000 years. So just a... Just a little thought. So um, there are some literary conventions um, that aren't technically figures of speech, 
um, that are used in the Bible that are certainly worth mentioning and being aware of as we're studying the Bible. Uh, the Bible uses round numbers. Um, there are times where the Bible is very specific about a number of things. There are times when it just rounds it off. And it's like, you know, talking about a number of people. It, it might just, you know, it might say there were 10,000 people. It's like, well, maybe there were 9,995 people, or maybe there were, you know, 10,004 people. You know, it, the, the Bible is, you know, it will round numbers off. We're used to that in our everyday thing. If you read a news report, you know, about something that happened, very frequently it's gonna it's gonna round numbers. You know, it's like, oh well, you know, so many, you know, thousand people uh, have died of the coronavirus or something like that. You know, it's um, the the numbers are are often rounded in our everyday use, and that's certainly the case in the Bible. So we don't want to say, oh well, it's the inspired word of God. Um, it has to be completely accurate, therefore it can't use round numbers. It's just not its not the way it would have been written. Um, another thing um, is using paraphrased quotations. Um, I know this is something that threw me a little bit early on in my Christianity because I was very used to quotation marks, meaning this is exactly what the person said. Um, but when you start comparing parallel passages of Scripture of the same event and you see quotations, then sometimes it gets a little tricky. It's like, well, what did they actually say? Because here it's in quotes that they said this, and here it's in quotes that they said this. And, well, they're, they're a little bit different. They mean basically the same thing, but they're a little different. Um, and the fact is, is like the idea of putting quotation marks around a phrase, quotation marks didn't exist when the Bible was written, um, but the idea of using those and saying, well, this is exactly what the person said, versus a paraphrase of what they said. That, that didn't exist. In the ancient world, it was perfectly acceptable for people to write out what somebody said and paraphrase it to some degree, as long as you're getting the sense of what they said right. Um, and so we will see that in the Bible. You know, it's like if you look at quotations, um, they don't. it doesn't necessarily mean that's exactly word for word what the person said. Um, so just be aware of that. Um, and another thing is uh, summarizing of narratives. Again, this is something we use in our everyday thing where uh, if somebody, I mean, if there's a news report, usually they're not going to give you every detail. Um, but again, it's something that we see when we look at parallel accounts. Uh, I mean, in particular, you look at the Gospels, which, you know, it's like you have four books that are covering the life of Jesus. And in many instances, you have the same events um, recorded by you know multiple of the gospel writers and you will often see that some of them will they'll basically just shorten the narrative up and they will they will leave out details um, and there's nothing wrong with that um, but it's just something that you need to be aware of when you're interpreting the text that like just because it doesn't say it in this passage doesn't mean you know it didn't happen um, obviously we don't want to read into the Bible things that aren't there um, but we certainly don't want to look at parallel passages and say, oh, well, you know, this one says that, you know, that there were two demoniacs uh, when, uh, you know, when Jesus landed on his, you know, from his boat. And this one says there was one demoniac. It's like, oh, well, there's a contradiction. It's like, well, no, it's like, you know, one of the gospel writers, you know, mentioned a demoniac and another one mentioned that there were two. So, um it's just, again, it's just literary conventions that 
nobody would have batted an eye about um, during the day. Um, but when we have like really technically precise things written in our day, and we try to read that back into it, then I mean we're really doing a disservice to the biblical authors. Um, and so we need to understand that they just wouldn't have written that way. Nobody would have expected them to. So. Any questions about any of that? Kind of a whirlwind through some figures of speech and and um, and conventions of, of literature. So the use of scripture to interpret scripture. This is one of our basic principles of interpreting the Bible. Um, and you know, we've uh, we've at least mentioned like the doctrine of inerrancy. Um, we, I'm sure, as a, as a church, know very well that our understanding of the Bible is it's the Word of God. Um, it doesn't contain error, um, and part of that is that the Bible doesn't contradict itself. Um, and the Bible often touches on the same topic in multiple places. Um, this happens in historical narrative. It happens in didactic teaching. It happens in poetry. I mean, it just happens all over the place where the same topics are discussed in multiple places. And it can be very helpful to, um, to look at those topics in the different places they're discussed and get a fuller understanding of what's going on with respect to that topic. Um, but... Again, just, just the idea that the Bible doesn't contradict itself means that we can look at those things and they can inform each other. Um, we always have to be sure that we are looking at them and we are trying to come to a, a harmonious interpretation. Um, I mean, just think of it in terms of just secular literature. If somebody wrote a book and you were reading it, you know, and you're reading in one chapter and it seems to say one thing, and then a couple chapters later, you come across where they kind of address the same topic again, and they seem to say something that contradicts that. And do you just immediately say, oh, well, this, this guy is just, he's just contradicting himself? Or do you say, hmm, maybe, maybe I'm misunderstanding one of these passages. I mean, what you're going to do is you're going to go back and you're going you're gonna to look at the two passages and you're going to try to figure out, it's like, well, what's going on? Because you're going to assume... Whoever, the, whoever wrote this is smart enough that they're, you know, they're not going to contradict themselves a couple chapters later. Um, and that's, you know, but the fact is they might, you know, it can happen. But when it comes to the Bible, we don't have that problem. You know, the Bible is not going to contradict itself. So anytime we come across something where it's like, well, it seems to be saying this in this place, and it seems to be saying this over here in another place, we need to work through it and try to understand, like, well, how do these things go together? How do we come up with a harmonious interpretation of them? Um, so, just a just an example. This is this is a really simple example um, where you have one passage of scripture that kind of just mentions something, um, and you can go to another passage to get a fuller understanding of it. So, uh, Titus chapter three, verse one, um, Paul says, "Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities." Um, you know, and then he goes on with you know with other things that they're to to you know that that uh, Titus should remind the people of, but he doesn't really elaborate on the whole idea of submission to rulers and authorities. And you might say, oh well, 
how should I how should I interpret that? What what should I understand by the idea of rulers uh, of submission to rulers and authorities? Um, what, what would be the grounds for this? I, I just don't have enough information here in in this just a little brief statement in Titus. But then if you flip back to Romans chapter 13, Paul has an extended discussion on submission to rulers and authorities. So Romans 13, uh, verses 1 through 7, he says, uh, Let every person be uh, subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So there, like Paul gives just this extensive discussion of this. Um, and so if you're reading Titus and he's like, well, I just don't understand how, how this works. What's the basis of it? How does it work out in my life? We just go over to Romans and you've got a fuller explanation of it. Now, again, that's a really simple one where we're just like looking at two passages and just like filling in extra detail. Um, it can get a lot more complicated. Um, I'm looking at the time here, so I definitely need to move this quick. Um, it can get a, a bit complicated um, because sometimes there actually is a, an order of interpretation um, where, in a sense, one passage or one type of passage kind of has interpretive priority. Now, I don't mean that it overrides, you know, that one passage overrides another one but that we should give one passage more weight than another in determining the correct interpretation of how to harmonize these things. And there's a few different categories of this. Um, one is explicit and implicit. Um, now, it's very appropriate to, um, to interpret the Bible in terms of implication. Uh, there are some people who... Uh, have the wrong idea that you should always find you know explicit statements in the text of scripture for everything that you believe. That's not the case. Um, you should draw inferences from scripture um, as long as they're good, appropriate inferences. That's like, well, yeah, this is. I'm kind of required to come to this conclusion by the text. Um, so that's perfectly appropriate to do when you're uh, studying the Bible. Um, but when you're looking at a passage and you you, you come to an inference of what you think it means, um, and you have another passage that has an explicit statement that contradicts that, then you should look at it and say, okay, I need to go with the explicit statement and just really question the inference I've drawn. Uh, one clear example, um, and this is the whole Calvinism-Arminianism debate, um, people will often cite John 3.16, and they'll say, well, for God so loved the world, 
that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Well, obviously then, we can infer that everybody has the ability to believe in Jesus. Because he's just saying, it was like, well, whoever believes. The, the inference we draw, the implication is, well, everybody must have the ability to believe. Everybody must have the ability to come to Jesus. But if you just jump forward, three verses, sorry, three chapters, um, John 6, 44, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus there is stating explicitly that people do not have the ability to come to Jesus. People do not have the ability to believe in Jesus apart from the work of God. And so if we look at John 3.16, we, we can't say, well, you know, since it's saying you know, whoever believes, we just have to assume that everybody has the ability and then have that override John 6.44. John 6.44 is the explicit text that actually tells us the ability of mankind. Uh, you know, no one can come to me. Um, that's the explicit statement. And so we, uh, we are obligated then to interpret John 3.16 to, um, you know, everything that it says is true, but we can't draw the inference from it that everybody has the ability. That's just not a valid inference. Um, I mean, I, I would argue that it wouldn't be a valid inference even if we didn't have John 6.44, but many people try to make that inference. Um, and it just it flatly contradicts John 6.44, so we have to abandon that inference. Um, another category is, um, you know, we've talked about different genres. Um, sometimes people will take historical narrative and they will attempt to uh, draw conclusions about the way that uh, that we as Christians ought to behave. And that isn't wrong in itself, but it can be dangerous um, because, you know, we have examples of biblical figures who have done things that shouldn't be done. It's like, I mean, is David a good example? King David, is he a good example for us? Like, well, yeah, in many ways he is. Um, but did David do some things that we definitely don't want to emulate? Well, certainly, yes. Um, you know, David committed adultery. That's something that we should definitely avoid. Um, even just like uh, a phrase that I don't hear much anymore, but you know, once upon a time was really popular, was what would Jesus do? Um, that was something that people talked about a lot. Um, and Jesus is an excellent example of holiness and obedience to God. And we we look at the life of Jesus, and you know, yeah, we can we can look at that and say he's a good example. We should try to do what Jesus does. Um, but there are some things in the life of Jesus that are just, that it's not appropriate for us. Should, should we attempt to die for people's sins? Well, no. I mean, that's just, um, that's not something we should do. Should we attempt to, you know, go into the temple and drive out the money changers? I'd probably not. Um, I mean, I guess you could debate that one, but, um, but we, we need to be careful that, that, um, that the explicit teaching, the didactic teaching about how we should live um, is the primary there. And so if we come across anything where we see an example of some godly person doing something, but it's 
contrary to the explicit didactic teaching of what we should do for holiness, then um, the, the didactic needs to have interpretive priority uh, over the narrative. Is that, is that clear? Okay. Chris? Yes. So you'll hear people, uh, where this comes up lots of times is you'll hear people say, well, that's in the Bible. Mm-hmm. You know, the Bible states that. But mm-hmm. like you said, lots of times the Bible states things that it doesn't make a judgment on mm-hmm. at that particular moment. Yeah, that's, time, but that's it, true. It will explain it later. So maybe polygamy or something like mm-hmm. that, that, you know, what might be something that people are like, well, it's there. Right. You know, but you got to read the rest of Scripture and sort of see. Yeah, yeah. Messages. Polygamy is a, is a great example. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if you if you look at the explicit teaching on the nature of marriage, then that seems to exclude polygamy. Even though you look at many you know great people of faith in the Old Testament and they were polygamists, so. And that mostly comes up with I think so this already historical narrative because it's just describing things mm-hmm. that happened. Right. And as you're saying, it's not necessarily issuing judgments right then and there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's absolutely right. Um, Another category um, is uh, the clear and the obscure. Um, Some passages of the Bible are just harder to interpret than than others. Um, And some passages of the Bible are very clear. Sometimes you can have a topic that's like mentioned like offhand in one place, and then you have another place where like there's this extended discussion with all sorts of arguments and you know points and counterpoints and um, it's like the clear one should be the one that drives our interpretation um, a nice example of that is the issue of being saved first uh, Timothy chapter 2 verses 13 through 15 uh, Paul there says for Adam was formed first then Eve and Adam was not deceived but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, you could look at that and say, oh, well, there's a means of salvation, bearing children. Um, But, I mean, that's just, it's kind of an obscure text there. Uh, Whereas if you look at, like, for example, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Um, and of course, that's just one passage in multitudes of passages that talk very explicitly um, about salvation being apart from works. And so, if you look at the First Timothy passage and say, "Oh, well, yeah, you can just you know, women can just get pregnant and have kids." That's that's a way to get saved. It just doesn't square with the rest of it. So um, that's just one you know clear example of um, you don't you don't want to take a passage that is is obscure that is like it's just there's not much explained there. You don't really have a, a clear way to get to the meaning of it, and then set it against a passage where um, it's all just laid out very clearly. Um, and then finally, we have uh, the New Testament and the Old Testament. Um, the Bible has clearly set up a... Um, well, I mean, the, the Bible is presented in a progressive revelation style where God, in working out redemptive history, has revealed more and more information. And many things that were presented in a shadowy and hidden way uh, were then later revealed. Um, 
one uh, just as an example. Um, you, I mean, I guess to state it, you should give the New Testament interpretive priority over the Old Testament. You don't want to go and interpret the Old Testament in a way that seems to be at odds with what the New Testament says. Whereas there could be something in the Old Testament where it's like, I never would have got that reading in the Old Testament, but the New Testament author tells me that this is what it means. So one example of that is uh, Psalm 110. And we we talked about this um, when Pastor Rick was going through Hebrews 7 uh, with discussion of Melchizedek. Um, And Psalm 110 mentions Melchizedek. Uh, and talks about you're your priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And it's like, well, what is all this talking about? Um, and the author of Hebrews tells us very clearly that this is a discussion of Jesus and his high priesthood. Um, and so we need to look at that from the perspective of the New Testament author is giving us the authoritative interpretation of the Old Testament text. And so... Um, we just that's a principle that we should apply as we're as we're studying the text that the New Testament has interpretive priority. Any questions about that or anything else we've talked about? I know I've cut us real short on time for the exercise. So we'll we'll see if we can in five to ten minutes um, do the exercise. Which basically it's three different places where. The uh, the account of Paul's conversion is uh, is recorded, and there's some differences between them. People have even pointed to them and said, "Oh, there's contradictions." Um, but just try to quickly, in what little time we have, look through those and see if you can kind of piece together a harmonious look at the conversion of Paul.
salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven. Given among men. By which we must apologize I I got too long-winded and didn't guess didn't give you guys enough time so 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 thoughts um, what what have people noticed what what can you put together here well okay one of the first things that jumped out to me was between from the Acts 9 to the Acts 22 mm-hmm. um, there was detail on what those who were with him heard mm-hmm. and they don't they don't contradict each other right one just gives more detail of they heard the voice but did not understand it and the other one just says they heard the voice yeah the, there there is that that appearance of contradiction um, where in in chapter 9 says hearing the voice uh, but seeing no one and then in chapter 22 uh, says uh, they did not understand the voice of the one who's speaking to me, but they saw the light. So that means they still heard the voice. Yeah, yeah, they still heard the voice. But people have looked at that and it's like, oh, well, it says they didn't hear anything, and then it says they did hear something. And they also look at the light one there. It's like, oh, well, uh, you know, one says that they saw something, and one says they didn't see something. Well, it's, it's actually like more specific than that, isn't it? Yeah. You know, where it's like one of them says. They didn't understand the voice, and one of them says they heard a voice. So they heard a voice, they just didn't understand it, right? And then what about what they saw? They saw something and they saw light. Well, light is something. Right, yeah. So they, well, yeah, they didn't, it says they didn't see anyone. One says that they saw a light, and one says they didn't see anyone. Okay, yeah. So they saw a light, yeah. but they didn't see a person, right? So that's that's actually like the big one. Tim, did you say something? I was just going to say in a similar train, it says the first in Acts 9 that they stood speechless, and then the next 26, after we had all fallen to the ground, mm-hmm. you heard a voice. Yeah, that's another thing. It's like verse 26 actually tells us that like this this light knocked everybody to the ground, not just, not just Paul. Um, 
Yeah, and chapter 26 also said, as far as them not understanding, it says because he spoke to me in the Hebrew language. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I don't know if it was if it was because the people that were with Paul didn't know Hebrew, or if there was just something about the voice where it was only understandable to Paul. But that's certainly a conclusion that would be, you know, kind of suggests itself is that, you know, Paul saying, yeah, it spoke to me in the Hebrew language, and so it could just be that it's like, well, not none of the people that were with him knew the Hebrew language. So. There's, there's several differences between what was said mm-hmm. uh, by the voice, and specifically, also, there's uh, the question, because he asked the question, what shall I do, Lord, in mm-hmm. chapter 22, Right. which I was looking more in the context of chapter 22, and it appears like it could go on, there's even more context there. I'm sorry, say that one more time. And looking, looking, reading further in chapter 22, besides what you have on here, it looks like actually there's even more that helps understand chapter 26 um, I think oh that I didn't include in the yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So. because chapter 26 seems to lump like three different things together right in some ways right yeah yeah so it's I mean it's it's a unfortunately a, again I kind of ran us out of time so it was hard to get a like a, a real good examination but uh, hopefully that's just a little bit of exercise. And, you know, you could take this home and play with it and, you know, look at more of the context in the book of Acts on these passages. Um, and if you want to even, like, bring in, like, you know, I know Paul mentions this in the book of Galatians briefly, you know, not, not in as much detail. But um, it's definitely a good exercise to just be looking at different passages and trying to see is like, well, how can we harmonize these? How can we, how can we bring them together to have a fuller understanding of, of what's going on, um, and that's a that's a very useful exercise. Um, but it, it's also very useful that we understand that like uh, God gave us the Bible in the form He did for reasons, um, and um, we should part of what we should consider is is like, well, why did in this place this be mentioned and in that place that be mentioned? Now, in some sometimes some instances, there's not really going to be any kind of clear reason, but sometimes. Like specifically when you're looking at the Gospels, and it's like, well, what accounts of Jesus did they include? Um, sometimes you can kind of get an idea of like the 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 intent or the the audience of that particular Gospel writer. It's like, oh, well, they included this because of this reason. Um, so the differences are actually like you don't want to just harmonize and just ignore the differences. Harmonizing is is great, and you should do that. But you should also like pay attention. It's like, well, why are the differences there? What you know? What's the difference in communication? So, Chris, one of the phrases that one of my seminary professors had was, "This is conspicuous by its absence." Okay. So even looking at what's not there, mm-hmm. so I mean, you got to be careful with that because mm-hmm. you can go too far. But sometimes right. when you look at different accounts, there's you know, it, sometimes it accentuates by what's not stated. Yeah, yeah, that, that's absolutely true. Yeah. It, if somebody leaves something out, sometimes it just it's screaming at you that there's a reason why that was left out yeah. of this particular account. So yeah, definitely old stuff you should be aware of. But it's all just kind of in the network of scripture interpret scripture. You don't just look at a passage and say, well, this passage all in isolation by itself. I'm just going to interpret this, and if I bring in something else, I'm I'm messing up. No, it's like God wrote this whole book. It's, it's all true and it all speaks, you know, to itself. Um, and so you just need to take all of that into account and try to bring the whole counsel of the Word of God to bear um, 
you know, in whatever way it relates to the passage you're trying to interpret. So, any final questions or comments on that? All right. Let's uh, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, again, just uh, we thank you for the great privilege of of having your word that you um, didn't leave us with just a a brief message, um, but Lord, you have given us a uh, a large book uh, that is just rich with uh, deep truths that uh, really we will never be able to fathom in our short lives on this earth. And uh, God, I just pray that we would be diligent to study, to try to uh, know of much as know as much of your mind as we can, uh, to know it accurately, to reverence your word. Um, and God, just that you would be glorified in your saints. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.